Welcome to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Talk radio to inspire, inform, and stimulate. Bringing you enlightened discussions with authors, creatives, innovative business and health professionals, and ordinary people living extraordinary lives. Sharing their expertise and life stories. Making a difference one word at a time. Now, here's your host, Vicki St. Clair. And welcome, everybody. Welcome, welcome. Well, coming up today, we're joined by three experts. They're going to talk about loving through your differences, loving like you mean it, and feeding your soul. And we have a lot to discuss with our three experts, so I'm going to jump straight in here and introduce our first topic and my first guest. So the question is, is it possible to build a strong long-lasting relationship when you have very different perspectives on life. And Dr. James Crichton says it is. And fittingly, the title of his new book is Loving Through Your Differences, Building Strong Relationships from Separate Realities. Dr. James Crichton is the author of uh, several books. He's worked with couples and conducted communications training for nearly 50 years around the world. And uh, you can find out more about him at jameslcrichton.com. And he's joining us right now. Dr. James Crichton, welcome. Hi, good to be with you. And it's good to have you here. And uh, this is a great start to our show today with your new book, Loving Through Your Differences. Um, It draws on the latest research in cognitive science and developmental psychology to show how we literally invent our realities with our perceptual minds Nobody has exactly the same beliefs, values, or philosophies. And when we come together in relationships, that can cause problems, right? (laughs) Well, often couples admire their similarities as they're getting ready to get married. And after a few weeks, they begin to discover they have significant differences. And that can be a major shock and and sometimes even threaten the relationship. Uh, Most couples fight. Uh, some fight rarely, some fight often. Uh, I was, uh, I'm in a marriage where we've fought often, and uh, so I've uh, devoted my professional career to trying to find things that, uh, that, that made it better. And we've been married now 53 years, so I guess we're going to make it. I, I was going to say, um, it's a testament to your work that you've made it then, since you do fight often, <laughs> you have fought often, um, and you've found solutions that work for you. So um, the subtitle is, is Building Strong Relationships from Separate Realities. So let's, let's begin right there and talk about, um, you know, how we react so very differently to something. And it can be something as mundane as I was remembering when I was reading through your book, um, a situation that I had when I was married. Um, and my husband... I was in a, a very important meeting and I told everyone, don't disturb us. And my assistant knocked on the door and said, I'm so sorry to bother you, but your husband's on the phone. He said, it's really, really urgent. And so I go to the phone and I'm like, what? What happened? And he said, the car needs a new alternator. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was like, what? <laughs> so let's talk about you know, what, that can be very serious down the road. That's a funny example, but I mean, it can cause us a lot of problems. Well, yeah, you can you can start with something real simple, like uh, you go to a movie together, and 
I, I enjoy the movie, and my wife is bored to tears. She, she doesn't like car chases. And uh, so after the movie, we get together, and I say, boy, that was a great movie. And we get off and running, and soon, soon I'm being told that uh, anybody who can enjoy that movie was adolescent. Off, off we go. <laughs> um, the truth is that I enjoyed it, and the truth is that she was bored. Whether it was a good movie or not, who knows. Uh, but I had the experience of enjoyment. She had the experience of boredom. And that's because feelings are not just caused by external events. They're caused by how we interpret and process those external events. Uh, so that when I, when I have an experience, it's different than hers because I interpret it in light of my how I was raised, uh, trained, and all all the things that have happened in my life that make me feel a particular way, right. no one else has exactly the same reality. Right. And so when we get in fights about whose reality is right, uh, it's one of the less productive things you can do in a marriage. Yeah, I it's think just, I think it's really important though. Um, you you kind of hit a ground when you, a common ground when you realize that you were raised so differently and you do have those different expectations. Yeah, I sometimes, uh, there's an example I saw recently where a couple getting ready to buy a new car and having real trouble about the new car and it turned out that he was raised in an immigrant family where it was very important to show the world that they'd made it, that uh, they had been able to carve out success uh, despite their immigrant roots. She was raised in a working-class family that prided itself on never getting above itself, mm. of, of being part of part, part of their peers and so on, and she'd already pushed the limits by going to college. And uh, when he, of course, wanted uh, something like a Mercedes, and every time she got even nearer a Mercedes, she'd get itchy. Uh, because it just violated her sense of what was proper and right to, to do and so on. Right. So they really weren't arguing about the car. They were arguing about whose experience was right, whose values were right, uh, whose family culture was right. Right. And you encourage couples, your, your whole book is about this, uh, you encourage us to use differences as, as learning lessons, as teachers, if you will, um, you say we can do this by, we can break an impasse by learning to reframe the situation, uh, reframe the stories we tell ourselves. We have to get to know different parts of our own personality. So talk to us a little about that, if you would. Well, he, in the car example, he, he's framed it as an opportunity to demonstrate to the world that he's made it. She's framed it as a chance to showing solidarity with the, the people that she values and cares for. Uh, and those frames limit the options that they have available. Um, example of framing, uh, we had a guy in class who loved to hunt, and he'd go off with the, with the guys and hunt every few months and so on. And when he came home, his wife uh, peppered him with questions. You know, did you do this? Did you see this? And so on. He interpreted it as she was suspicious of 
uh, he work, was working on reframing and realized that her behavior could just as easily be interpreted as she was insecure and needed reassurance that he really cared for her and so forth. And as he began to work with that new frame, that what she needed was reassurance, his behavior changed significantly. And then hers did because she was getting the reassurance that she cared for. And the reassurance was as good an interpretation of, of her behavior as the uh, jealousy and suspicion and so right. forth. Right. Um, you write that you years ago were given um, some great advice by a counselor who talked about the five-minute rule and you've implemented that in your marriage and you say that rule possibly saved your marriage. Um, Would (laughs) would you talk to us a a little about that? And then I've got some questions around that. Okay. Well, when we get into arguments about whose reality is right, they often escalate up to the point that uh, the only name of the game is hurting the other person either psychologically or sometimes physically. And so a lot of what we're trying to do is to keep it from escalating that way. And most of the times when we argue about every 20 seconds, we're getting from somebody else that we're bad, stupid, or crazy for feeling the way we do. And so what happens, resistance breeds resistance when you you feel like your reality is being threatened. Uh, you're going to defend it louder and longer, and then they defend theirs louder and longer. Uh, what we found was um, we, we enacted something called the five-minute rule, and either one of us can invoke it. And what happens is always we stop dead whatever we're doing, and all we can talk about is who goes first, and if we can't agree on that, we flip a coin. That person gets to go for five minutes saying whatever they want, however they want, without any interruption and preferably without any loud body language coming back. In return for which, then the other partner gets five minutes to say whatever he or she wants. And what seems to work is you go long enough without being interrupted that some of the heat and the, the venom seems to go out of it and so on. At about four minutes, I find I'm boring even myself because uh, I'm beginning to repeat myself and so on. I can't say it over and over and over and over. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes we have to go in a second five minutes, uh, and sometimes it doesn't end any more spectacularly than, well, that's all I had to say. But that's still not a bad jumping-off point for, for dealing with life's problems. Right. So, big question then, how do you handle it if one partner <laughs> keeps jumping in with, yes, but, yes, but? <laughs> you have to agree to the rule, and you have to mean it. Uh, one of the things I've found is the best time for agreeing on a rule like this. Is you very fairly recently had a fight. It hurt. You're still kind of a little bit raw inside, and you don't want to go there again. And so you'll agree to something that might otherwise seem foolish or unduly structured or something like that because you don't want to to hurt like you are now, uh, like you have been for the last few hours or days. Mm -hmm. Uh, So when you're called, if you get 
power rules, and that means you have to consciously agree on, uh, on what the rules are going to be. Right. I, I've seen it many, I, I'm sure you have uh, many fold over, but I've seen many times with friends that what, like a, maybe an only child um, comes into a relationship with somebody who's got seven, you know five, six, seven siblings, and they come from a noisy household where everybody's yelling at one another, and then the single person, can't, the the single child person can't handle it. That that's correct, and in fact, the psychologists talk about the pursuers and distancers. Pursuers are people who are trained when when they're upset, to uh, they they've got to express it, they got to deal with it right now, and so on. And distancers are people whose response to that kind of conflict is to pull away, and when they pull away, it simply drives the pursuer mad. They come, they come on harder, and then the right. distance are packed away, and so on. Um, my wife and I were a little like that. She was the pursuer, and I was the distancer. Conflict was never handled openly in my family. Right. right. And uh, we had eventually to agree on a rule about that. One of the one of the key issues was that I felt controlled because she insisted on it. We had to deal with it right when she felt something, and I didn't always want to deal with it right then. Uh, I think the rule was uh, we had to deal with it within 24 hours, and um, and you know that it had to be dealt with. And I would agree that it had to be dealt with within 24 hours. What would usually happen is once we'd agreed on one, we are going to talk about it, I would say, oh, the heck with it, let's get it over with. Uh, <laughs> the, reason, the reason being, what, once we'd agreed, it wasn't a control issue anymore. And as soon as it wasn't a control issue, I'd rather get it over with, too. Yeah. So you recommend that couples read the book all the way through and then come back together and talk about how much of it they see in themselves, how much they see it in, in the relationship. And I, I have a question because you taught all around the world, Korea, Japan, Israel, Brazil, Egypt, Russia, etc. Um, obviously, there are some cultural expectations or standards within each, each country, each culture. But at the heart of it, how different are our relationship issues? Well, some of the principles like resistance reach resistance and so on, uh, those seem to be true in any culture. Uh, the pursuer-distancer thing may be more our culture. Uh, I, I don't know. I haven't been researched one way or another. Um, but, I mean, my most recent thing was I taught several hundred people in, the Thai, in Thailand, their Department of Mental Health, because they were having so many conflicts and relationships and so on. Their, their patients and clients were having so many that they wanted some help in uh, teaching them new skills and so on. Uh, I, I'm not expert on cultural differences, right? but uh, if, if you're going to set new rules, you're, you're dealing with culture anyway, family yeah. culture instead of I... national culture. Because uh, I, I think, um, you know, being uh, British, I have lived in America for a long time, but I still see cultural differences, um, even between, you know, Westerners. Um, so it's, it's kind of an interesting thing and something to consider, I think, when people go into relationships. Um, you say 
one of the things we need to look at is when our when our values differ in a relationship. But first of all, just tell us very quickly what you how you define values. Well, values are the things we use to measure things that they're good, bad, right, wrong, uh, fair, unfair, and so forth, and so on. And so they're often motherhood kind of words like uh, loyalty, privacy. Uh, thrift, on and on and on. And what I find is that most arguments about value get into get into trouble because instead of uh, seeing the other person, well, you see the other person as against your values. But in fact, what's really going on in most cases is, is uh, the amount of emphasis that you're going to put on one value versus another. Mm-hmm. I'm, l- I'm losing you. Can you speak up a little? I'm sorry, I lost that last little bit. Okay, the real issue then is what priority or weight do you give to one of those values versus another? And that means that if you're looking at your partner, it's not your partner is against freedom, it's not that your partner is against spontaneity, your partner is for um, discipline and structure and so forth. But the kid needs both. It's the so the argument at, at best is about what weight or value you're going to give to one value versus the other in this particular situation. And so I'm going to ask uh, this question of all of our guests today because um, I'm sure we'll get slightly different answers. And I want to, you talk about the role of um, self-talk and, uh, you know, many of us have this negative internal uh, inner critic, if you will. Um, what What's the best advice you have for overcoming that negative self-talk? Right. Well, as, as you say, most of us have an inner voice that's commenting all the time. And often uh, it's commenting with negatives like, boy, did you screw that up? <laughs> and stuff like that. So, uh, And the, the voice that's speaking has internalized the attitude childhood, and unless we update them, uh, those those attitudes and opinions just get repeated inside of us over and over and over again. Uh, the idea is that if there are if there's self-talk that's limiting us, getting in the way, and so forth, is you have to first make that self-talk conscious if you're aware you're doing it, and then it helps actually identify a positive phrase that you want to create inside yourself uh, and to begin to reprogram. Uh, I have people who get up first thing in the morning, stand in front of the mirror and say their positive phrase 10 times as if they were talking to themselves and so forth. Right. Uh, others who have a rubber band around their wrist and when they find the negative self-talk, they snap that. I have a 
advice and uh, the book again is called loving through your differences building strong relationships from separate realities dr uh, james Crichton, thank you so much for being with us today appreciate your time great being with you and you can find out more about uh, dr Crichton's work at jameslcrichton.com please stay with us we'll be right back you're listening to conversations live with vicky st Clair. parkinson's disease affects as many as one million people in the united states At the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, it's our mission to beat this disease. To learn about the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, or if you want to help support our work, visit our website, pdf.org, or call us at 800-457-6676. In the Northwest, contact the Northwest Parkinson's Foundation at nwpf.org. Let's see if I... I guess that <sighs> this just isn't working. Knowing you have a great idea for a book is one thing, writing it another. So what's stopping you? Maybe you can't find time. Maybe you don't know where to begin. Maybe you wrote a couple of chapters, then disappeared down a rabbit hole. Or maybe you'd rather someone else write it for you. Partnering with the right coach or ghostwriter can make all the difference between talking about your book and finishing your book. As an award-winning writer and strategic consultant, Vicki St. Clair's storytelling credits span from business, health, self-help, and memoir to New York Times and USA Today best-selling anthologies. Vicki partners with people just like you at the exact level you need. Whether you need a little encouragement, editorial guidance, or full-blown ghostwriting and consulting services. If you're serious about telling the story you know is inside you, stop procrastinating. Let's get your story down on paper. Contact Vicki today. Email Vicki at VickiStClair.com or call 1-800-495-7617. See more about Vicki and her work at VickiStClair.com. You took the first step and quit smoking, but even former smokers may still be at risk for lung cancer. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know about a new low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early. It takes only 60 seconds and could save your life. You took the first step, now take the next. Visit SaveByTheScan.org for a simple quiz to see if you're eligible and talk to your doctor about screening. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. Coming next week on Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair, we explore two very personal and very different journeys from loss and sexual abuse to healing and redemption. We're joined by Pulitzer Prize-nominated author Meredith May with The Honey Bus, a memoir of loss, courage, and a girl saved by bees, and a journalist, Lori Hals Anderson, with Shout. Catch us live on Mondays at noon Pacific and again Fridays at 6 a.m. Find more details at conversationslive.net. Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Inspiring, innovative, and a great place to advertise. Learn more at conversationslive.net. No other station delivers this much variety. Alternative Talk 1150. 
And welcome back, everyone. You are listening to Conversations Live with Vicky St. Clair. And we're talking in this segment about loving like you mean it. Use the power of emotional mindfulness to transform your relationships. And my guest is Ronald uh, Frederick, Dr. Ronald Frederick. Um, scientists repeatedly tell us that we're born with the capacity to emotionally connect. More than that, we need connection and desire it. So why are our relationships so difficult and fraught with anxiety? And clinical psychologist Dr. Ronald Frederick says it's not our fault. It's our wiring from infancy. And the good news is that we can fix it. And that's what we're going to talk about right now. Dr. Ronald Frederick is the co-founder of the Center for Courageous Living in Beverly Hills. He's a founding senior faculty member of the Accelerated Experiential Dynamic Psychological Association's Monitor on Psychology. He's a frequent media guest and a recipient of the American Psychological Association's Malon Smith Scholarship Award for his research on the fear of intimacy. And uh, as I said, his latest book is called Loving Like You Mean It. Use the power of emotional mindfulness to transform your relationships. Dr. Ronald Frederick, welcome. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, my pleasure. And um, I want to just uh, ask you a question before we dive right into the book here. But what is, this is quite a mouthful, what, <laughs> what is the accelerated experiential dynamic, what is ex- accelerated what is that? Okay. Experiential dynamic <laughs> well, psychotherapy. Maybe this, maybe this will make it easier for you. The acronym is AEDP, and that's what we most of us call it, AEDP. Um, AEDP is a model of psychotherapy that it was and is and continues to be developed by Dr. Diana Fosha, who is a psychologist in New York. And... To, let's see how to sum it up. It's an attachment-based, emotion-focused, neurobiology-informed uh, psychotherapy. So what does that mean? Really, I think it speaks to actually what I will talk to you about, loving like you mean it. Um, really, our aim in doing ADP is to help people open up to the fullness of their emotional experience and the fullness of who they are because it's in the doing of that, it's when we're able to do that, that we can live our healthiest lives. And we do that best in relationship. And so as AADB therapists, we work uh, focused specifically on helping people to feel safe and supported and connected um, to traverse those emotional experiences in order to come out on the other side whole. Okay. Does that help to answer the question? It, it, it does. <laughs> the answer is quite a mouthful, too. So. <laughs> the answer is quite a mouthful, too. It's, not... it's an emotion-focused, relationship-oriented <laughs> therapy. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you explaining that to us. And you say that while everyone's specific problems will differ, the underlying issue for most of us is the same in relationships. We're afraid of being ourselves. Um, you know, we have so much um, literature and so much talk about being authentic and being genuine and being right. yourself lately, and yet we're still afraid of being ourselves. What's going on? Well, I think um, one point that I want to make very clear from the get-go is that it's not a fear that we're necessarily aware of. So 
some of your listeners might think, well, I'm not afraid of my feelings. I'm not afraid of being authentic. Um, And I certainly felt that way in my own life until I ended up in a therapy that was very helpful to me, that helped me see just how much um, anxiety and discomfort I had around my feelings, and in particular, my feelings in relationship. So um, <clears throat> was your question, why is that, that the case, is that coming back to what you first, what you just well, said? Just okay. why we're, we're afraid of being ourselves. I right, mean, exactly. When we're in a relationship and we want to get to know somebody and we're, exactly. a- we're asking well, you know, them to be themselves, why right, are we exactly. afraid of being ourselves? Right. And it, like I was said, we don't really know this. But the, the, the crux of the matter is, is that we're running on software um, that our relationship software that's a bit outdated and we're coming to our relationships not really thinking but just doing relationships the way we're, we've been wired to do them and that's where we run into problems. Mm-hmm. So let me unpack that for you a little bit until, and, and, and to answer your question. So as you said in your introduction, um, you know, uh, we are, we're wired to feel, uh, we come into the world as infants, um, emotionally expressive. It's how we connect. It's how we communicate. And as adults, we're wired to attune and to attach. So the caregiver and child, this is our, um, this is, you know, our main uh, goal, which is to come into the world, to connect, to have a secure relationship. And that's what attachment is, and attachment really is our primary need. If you think about it, um, as humans, we wouldn't survive if we didn't emotionally attach uh, to our caregivers. We know now that that is really the most important thing for us. So let's underline that point first, that attaching, having a safe connection is the most important thing. And the other point that I made is we do that through our emotions. When we're born, we don't have language. We just have our feelings. And it's how our parents, our caregivers, attune to our feelings, how they respond to them, uh, through which we come to learn about relationships. We come to learn about ourselves. Who am I? Am I a lovable person? What aspects of me are okay? What aspects of me are not okay? And all this information really gets wired in very early on in life. Our brains, when we're born, are like a lump of clay. Mm-hmm. And they get wired up, so to speak, through our interactions with our parents. So does this mean our parents have to do you know, awful things that we have to be able to point to abuse of some kind? No, that does happen for some people. But our parents or caregivers may have some discomfort around certain feelings. I certainly know that my parents did. Um, They may have their own anxiety. They may have depression. They may have unresolved trauma of their own. Many of us do. Well, all of that enters into our early experience. And in order for us to stay, feel safe and connect, we start to learn it's not a conscious thing. Is it okay for me to show my sadness? Um, Are my needs for connection okay? Uh, What do I need to do if they aren't? And we start to shape ourselves, and we start to shape 
uh, how we show up in relationship based on the other person, person who we're interacting with. And what happens is, fast forward, as adults, we go into our relationships and just go and do them the way that we learned early on. That's great for those of us who had optimal emotional experiences as kids because we're set up well for success. We can be flexible. Uh, we know how to make good use of our feelings. We don't. Um, we will share them, share them in a way that's constructive, don't feel held back in that way. We know how to modulate our feelings and how to regulate them. We know how to work with another person around feelings. Well, um, a lot of us didn't have that kind of experience. So we come to the world of adult relationships a bit with our one arm tied behind our back. Right, right. And that's where we run into problems. Uh, but the good news is, uh, and we're finding out more every day through neuroscience, that we can rewire our brains. So that happens just by trying to change our patterns, right, on a consistent exactly. basis. So exactly. G- give us an example of, of how that might work. Well, let's just underline this point again that I made early on, that our software, basically our relationship software, that's all developed through experience right? Our experience with our caregivers. So we know that actually it's experience that rewires our brain. So how we can make use of neuroplasticity, which is our brain's capacity to rewire and to create new neural networks, is to focus on the things that we need to develop about ourselves and afford ourselves the opportunities where we have experiences um, that will, uh, let's see, where we have experiences of our emotions in a constructive way that will uh, then lead us to a place where we can deal more constructively. And that affects how our brain is wired. So what I mean by that is, my whole program that I talk about in Loving Like You Mean It is about developing emotional mindfulness. Mm-hmm. And emotional mindfulness, as I talk about it, is being mindful of the ways in which our emotional programming shows up for us. And we do that by we need what we need to do is to turn inward and become more attuned with um, when, we, when we get triggered, when our old wiring gets triggered, when we're having feelings, when we're defending against our feelings. And um, so we start with needing to become aware. We need to become aware of when we're getting triggered, when we're reactive, when we're falling into old patterns, because that really is essential in order for us to be able to start to do things differently. So if, for for example... um, you know, when we have needs for uh, connection or we're feeling vulnerable or we're feeling afraid in relationship, if um, we're not aware that that's coming up for us, per se, we may uh, respond in a defensive way. So you reach out to your partner or you're, there's some kind of bid for connection, and they're not quite there in a way that you're hoping for. How do we respond? Do we say... Um, 
you know, oh, ouch, like, you know, right. when you didn't respond, uh, I don't know what's going on with you, and it makes me feel anxious. Or do we get attacking, you know, and or do we say, you know, say something? Perhaps that's critical, like what, nobody home? Like, you know, there's <laughs> you're, <laughs> right. uh, not responding to me. So uh, the second rather looks like criticism and anger, but really what's underneath is a sense of feeling vulnerable. Now, that all speaks to, you know, how we're wired. How do we uh, respond to what happens for us inside? So if we start by becoming aware, we start by the first step is becoming aware, recognizing and naming that we've been triggered, that something's going on. The next step is to stop, drop, and stay. And what I mean by that is to go inside and be mindful of and get to know what's going on for us emotionally. So instead of getting critical of our partner, we drop inside and we realize that actually we're feeling anxious Mm -hmm. or we're feeling afraid or our old feelings of abandonment are getting activated for us. So then step three would be to pause and reflect on that. See, we have the experience, but we need to also be able to reflect and make sense of it. I see now I was feeling agitated. I see now I was feeling anxious or uncomfortable, and my inclination is to lash out, or I did lash out. But I understand now that what's going on for me is that I'm feeling afraid or I'm feeling vulnerable or I'm feeling anxious. And then step four would be to mindfully relate that, uh, engage with our partner about it, so to mindfully relate. Now, in doing all of that, you are rewiring your brain. You're focusing differently. You're focusing internally on what's happening for you. You're learning to stay with your emotional experience instead of avoiding it. Um, you're pausing and reflecting to make sense of it. So you're bringing in the front part of your brain, the left side of your brain, to work with the right side of your brain. And then when you go to mindfully relate with your partner, you're bringing all these skills to bear to be mindful about the words you choose to regulate your feelings as you're talking. I mean, I go into this in great, um, great length you do. in my book, but those are sort of the steps of, um, of uh, emotional mindfulness as it's applied in our relationship. And all of those things together are what's changing the way our brain is wired. Right, right. It's fascinating stuff. Um, and I want to ask you, because I'm going to ask every guest this question, uh, because negative self-talk is so prevalent amongst us, I think. Yes. Um, what's your best advice for overcoming that negative self-talk? Because it can be very destructive in relationships. Yeah, we only yeah. have we only have a couple of minutes here, so. Okay, on the negative self talk, um, I see negative self talk. Well, there's a lot that I could say about it, Vicky, but um, let me say this: um, when I experience negative self talk with my clients or myself, what I really want to get at is what's going on behind that. Again, stop, drop, and stay. Mm-hmm. If we get caught up in our negative self talk. That may be an old pattern. They may be messages that we got. We may be blaming ourselves for having a feeling. Um, you're, for instance, I was just with a client. The message that she got from her, from her mom, from her parents, was that she was selfish 
and that her needs were too much. And actually, she had real needs as a child for affection that weren't being met for whatever reason. So she could um, go into self-talk, and uh, that might be shaming, that might be self-critical, or she could realize, perhaps she might realize by, um, by dropping inside of herself, is that underneath she was longing for something, and it's afraid, she's afraid to ask for it. She doesn't feel she's longing for connection in some way. Maybe she's longing for soothing from her partner. But those are old messages that right. got wired in that caused her to make them go away, because that's what we do as kids, make it go away so things will be copacetic with your parents. Right. So what I'd say with negative self-talk is to note it, okay, recognize a name, first step, note it, and then let's, let's uh, stop, drop, and stay with our emotional selves, and let's get see what's behind that negative self-talk. Well, good advice. And the book is called Loving Like You Mean It. Use the power of emotional mindfulness to transform your relationships. Certainly a lot of great information in here and tools and resources that people uh, can read and take away. Dr. Ronald Frederick, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. You can find uh, more about Dr. Frederick and his work at uh, C. Let me just make sure I get this right. It's cfcliving.com, cfcliving.com. Dot com. Right. As in the Center for Courageous Living. There we go. I love it. Center for Courageous Living. <laughs> Takes a lot of courage to show up. <laughs> it does. It does. Thanks for showing up today. All right. We have to take a quick break. We'll be right back. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. I'm Paul George of the Indiana Pacers. When I was six, my days were spent playing basketball. When I was six, my dream was to make it to the NBA. When I was six, my mom had a stroke. So I want you to learn to spot a stroke fast. F-A-S-T. F, face drooping. A, arm weakness. S, speech difficulty. T, time to call 911. I'm Paul George. Spot a stroke fast. Visit strokeassociation.org. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. This is Martha Norwalk. Every Sunday morning, beginning at 9 a.m., thanks in part to the Northwest School of Animal Massage, we cover the world of animals. This week, April 21st, it's Easter Sunday and an encore presentation of Shelter Rescue Sanctuary Sunday. Join us to hear Dr. Bill Burlingame remembered with love and to hear that Missy's Rescue has to close their doors by April 30th. So join us to find out how you can help on Martha Norwalk's Animal World, Sunday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative Talk, AM 1150. Do you love wildlife? Then make a real difference by helping Paws care for sick and injured wild animals. Volunteers help feed and clean the animals until they are well enough to return to the wild. Sign up today and help save a wild life. No experience necessary. All training is provided. Visit paws.org or call 425-787-2500. Sensory sensitivity, repetitious behavior, Lack of eye contact. You can see signs of autism in children as young as 18 months. Learn the signs at autismspeaks.org slash signs. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Coming next week on Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair, we explore two very personal and very different journeys from loss and sexual abuse to healing and redemption. We're joined by Pulitzer Prize-nominated author Meredith May with The Honey Bus, a memoir of loss, courage, and a girl saved by bees, and a journalist, Lori Hals-Anderson, with Shout. 
Catch us live on Mondays at noon Pacific and again Fridays at 6 a.m. Find more details at conversationslive.net. Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Innovative business leaders know to advertise here. Learn how affordable at conversationslive.net. Find out the latest about your favorite shows on Alternative Talk 1150. Check out 1150kknw.com. And welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. And coming up next, I'm talking with Carly Pollock. She's the author of Feed Your Soul. She's the founder of Nutritional Wisdom based in Austin, Texas. Uh, She's a certified clinical nutritionist with a master's degree in holistic nutrition, and she's been awarded Best Nutritionist in Austin for five years running. She's helped over 10,000 people achieve their health and happiness goals. And you can find out more about her at CarlyPollock.com. Her new book is called Feed Your Soul, Nutritional Wisdom to Lose Weight Permanently and Live Fulfilled. Carly Pollock, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. And Carly's joining us from Skype, uh, via, via Skype today. And I wanted uh, to end today's show um, on relationships with you, Carly, because I've heard from so many friends that it depends on how well their relationships are going as to how well their diet and their health plan is going. And so there's a very strong connection there for many people. Um, and I want to begin with something you say. Uh, you say that you come, we, we have this phrase in America, comfort food. And, uh, you know, when things aren't going so well, many of us are driven to comfort food. And you say that that phrase does us a huge disservice. Would you tell us why? Yeah, absolutely. You know, when you have a list of all the foods that we would in America classify as comfort foods, uh, fried chicken, heavy, fried, extremely fatty foods, that when you really think about it, after eating these foods, we don't feel comfortable. They actually make us feel very uncomfortable. And there is this, what I believe, energetic you know, law of attraction that the vibration and emotional state that we put out actually attracts the vibration of food. Foods that are healthy for you, your fruits, your vegetables, your unprocessed foods that are very alive, they have a very high frequency. And you, when you're in a happy, high state of emotion, those are the foods you crave. Think about when you finish exercise or you leave a yoga class and you're feeling really great. You crave a salad, you want a smoothie, you want a green juice. But when we're sitting on the couch and we've just gone through a breakup or we're hormonal and we're feeling really frustrated, tired, depressed, we crave these quote-unquote comfort foods, but they have a very low vibration and they drag us down and they make us feel the exact way we were feeling when we craved them. So I see that it, it doesn't do us a disservice because words carry so much power. And when we say comfort foods, we go, oh, I really need comfort. Let me eat this food because that's what we call it. When in reality, the true comfort we crave has nothing to do with food. Right. You say true change. When we're trying to uh, be healthy and make lifestyle changes, in, you know, especially with nutrition and, and exercise and all that stuff that supports our overall life, you say true change happens through love, not force. What do you mean by that? 
for so many years, I thought that I could force my way to skinny and that I could force my way healthy. And that was forcing myself out of fear of what my body would look like or what would happen if I didn't get on that treadmill or if I didn't choose that salad. And there's just such a negative energy behind that. And even when we force ourselves to do the right thing, we absolutely cannot keep it consistent. So three days later, we're doing what we were doing before that was creating a consequence or we're rebelling against our former healthier selves the three days before. When I say true change happens by love, when I realize that I'm choosing the foods or choosing to exercise or meditate or go to sleep on time or wake up without pressing snooze, whatever the healthy behavior is, when I'm choosing that coming from a place of love, that I love myself, that I want better for myself versus I don't trust myself or I'll gain weight if I don't do this, it creates far more of a consistency, which is really what everyone is after. We we don't just want to make change, whether it's in our relationships or our health. We want to make permanent changes. We want to make changes that stick. Mm-hmm. And so when when we turn to uh, comfort food, <laughs> for want of a better phrase for this purposes, what are some ways that we can start turning that around? I just was with a friend on the phone at the weekend, and she's like, I've eaten two quarts of ice cream this weekend. And it's like, I don't know that. I think that's an American thing. I used to see it on the movies when I lived in England, people eating ice cream out of the tub. I've never actually done that. but That's a really low point. You know, you are, you know, you're in some need of some real love when you're right out of it, when you don't even put it in the bowl. Yeah. Um, so I think that the first thing that I do that is very powerful is I like to ask myself what I call high-powered or high-quality questions. So the first question would be, um, am I hungry? Am I physically hungry? And if the answer is no, which it usually is no when it comes to sweets or craving those comfort foods, then I ask another really high-powered question, which is, what am I really hungry for? And and I'm using a play on the word hungry, but what it what is it I really need to feel okay. Right. And is it, I need a distraction? Is it, I need human connection? Is it, I need comfort? Because a lot of the times, you know, comfort for me is sitting on the couch, not working, not, you know, doing something on my to-do list, but just watching TV, which, you know, we typically get so down on ourselves for doing these things because our mind says, oh, you should be doing all these other things. But sitting on the couch and watching TV with a really cozy blanket and some tea that's a comfort that doesn't have a consequence attached to it, whereas eating two quarts of ice cream absolutely does. So if anybody you know, um, is looking to really start to make the change of going from comfort eating or emotional eating to addressing the issue at the root, it's really looking at what they're feeling at the moment and coming up with much better rewards for them that don't have a consequence, calling a friend, even if it's shopping online. If if your bank account is, you know, you don't have a consequence, then I say do that. But taking a look at what you do now and thinking to yourself, you know what, I really don't want to make myself feel comfortable for three minutes right. when the end result is to feel chronically uncomfortable in my body. Right. You talk a lot about that in the book. Don't give up what's comfortable long term, <laughs> uh, you for know, for, I, for the I, short yeah, term. Yes. I always say, the, and I still say myself, I use this tool every day, I'm not willing to give up what I want most 
for what I want right now. So even before, right before this call, I had run into Whole Foods to grab something and my mind said, ooh, look at those cookies, look at those pretzels. You know, we're not even thinking about something until we're triggered. So I was visually triggered and I saw that food and I said, ooh, you deserve a treat for, you know, filling the <laughs> blank. And I said, I'm not willing to give up what I want most, which is health, which is a body that reflects how much I love and care about myself for two minutes of what that food will will do for me. So it's a really great mantra for us to practice throughout the day to remind ourselves of the outcome we're really after. Right. And we only have about 30 seconds here, unfortunately, Carly, but I want I do want to ask you because you talk a lot about this in the book, too, about dealing with negative self-talk and these horrible you know, loops that we get into in our brain. What's the best uh, piece of advice you can give for somebody who's stuck in that negative self-talk loop? Label it. When you say something negative, just say, this is negative thinking. And then think to yourself, ask another great question. What would my best friend say? What would I say to my best friend? What would my higher self say? What's the opposite of what I just said? Can I neutralize what I just said? So if you hate your thighs and you look in the mirror, you hate your thighs, maybe you can't say to yourself, I love my thighs and really believe it. But why don't you pick something about yourself that you truly do love and, and, and say that? Or why don't you know, you can say, uh, I am not defined or who I am is not by the size of my thighs. And that doesn't mean I don't want you to then work towards a body that you do want, but the negative self-talk is the first thing that needs to go if you want to make change. Yes, absolutely. Well, it's a great book. It's called Feed Your Soul, Nutritional Wisdom to Lose Weight Permanently and Live Fulfilled. I love that you talk about, um, you don't like the word stress management in here. You go into that in detail too. There's a lot of things in here that are, are quite different to other books I've seen on this topic. So uh, thanks for being with us, Carly Pollock. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. You can find out more about Carly, uh, Carly at her website, CarlyPollock.com. And we will see you next week. Until then, live well, live strong. Radio is very competitive. Shows soar in popularity and then flame out. Sometimes, however, a real connection is made with an audience, and success blooms year after year. For over a decade, Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair has built a loyal following thanks to inspiring and stimulating conversation. Longevity, loyalty, exclusivity. Smart advertisers seek it out. With Vicki's valuable audience, the search is over. Discover the affordable, effective ways to advertise your business. Log on to Conversations Live. Live.net. That's conversationslive.net today.